Our message comes to us today from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If no, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this passage of Scripture, Lord God, we pray that you would clear our minds of all of the distractions of this world. We pray that you would enable us to focus upon your Word, upon your Son, we pray that you would cause us to bow before your word and that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply the message of this text to our lives, that we would not sit in judgment over others and think how this may apply to those around us, but how does this apply to us? How does this apply to my life? And we pray that you would enable us to accurately and appropriately apply this passage in the way that was intended by you and by your faithful servant, the Apostle Paul. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my uh, favorite role models uh, in history, other than Christ, of course, outside of the Bible, let me, let me qualify that statement. Outside of the Bible, 
One of my uh, favorite role models in history is uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Probably not a surprise to many of you who know me. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, if you have forgotten your U.S. history, was Supreme Allied Commander of all forces in Europe during World War II and was the 34th President of the United States, was also President of Columbia University uh, in the interim. Uh, Eisenhower, what I appreciated about him is that he believed in leading by example and never making excuses for his failures. Thus, one of my favorite quotes by Eisenhower on leadership is that he once said, a good leader is someone who looks out the window when things are going right to see who to thank, and when things are going wrong, he looks in the mirror to see who to blame. Eisenhower actually lived out what he believed. One of the best examples of this is that in the days in, in, in the week leading up to the Normandy invasion that took place on June 6, 1944, Eisenhower wrote two letters leading up to that invasion. The first was a letter inspiring the troops that many of us have probably heard or read portions of in the past. In part, that letter that was to be read to the troops on the eve of uh, the Normandy invasion, which June 5th, 1944, read in part like this, quote, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies, and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be easy, an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. He goes on to say other things, but then concludes with this, I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. And that was very inspiring to many soldiers I've heard in interviews by World War II veterans that they were greatly inspired by the words of their uh, supreme allied commander on the day before the Normandy invasion. How very, um, however, very few realize that Eisenhower, as I said, wrote a second letter in the days leading up to the Normandy invasion, a note, really not very long, and he wrote it to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he kept it in his breast pocket during the entire Normandy invasion, just in case the invasion failed. The brief note read like this, quote, our landings in the Chaburg Havrayer area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Close quote. 
Eisenhower was willing to accept full responsibility for any failure even before knowing what might happen. In his mind, if things went wrong, it didn't matter what went wrong. It didn't matter how they went wrong. It didn't matter which divisions or battalions or companies failed to achieve their military objective on the beachhead. If things went wrong, he recognized that it was entirely his fault and was prepared to resign. Eisenhower led by example, by showing that leaders don't make excuses for their failures. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul is going to demonstrate that he leads by example, that he practices what he preaches and isn't just full of hot air. He actually walks the talk. Paul just got done in chapter 7 communicating to the church in Corinth that they should be willing to sacrifice almost anything for the sake of unity. That just because they can do something, just because they have the right to do something, Paul said to them, that doesn't mean they should. If our right will place a stumbling block in the path of our fellow believer, Paul says, we should be willing to forego that right. And so now in this section, Paul will offer himself. He will offer himself as a real-life example of what he has just taught them in chapter 7. So that is the connection between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Always remember that when you study your Bible. One chapter flows into the next in terms of thought. They are not disjointed from each other. And so Paul continues his discussion. I say continues because remember that the chapter numbers and divisions and breaks are not there in the original manuscript. This was simply a letter that Paul wrote. He just wrote from chapter 7, chapter 8, right into chapter 9. And so he continues in chapter 9 with a series of rhetorical questions, all demanding yes answers, right? That's the point of rhetorical questions, is that the, the answer is obvious, and he does this as a way of reminding them of his position and his authority. He wants to go back to that and just refresh their memory about his position and his authority. And so he says in verse 1, am I not free? The answer is yes. Paul is free to do whatever he desires, whatever he wants within biblical means, of course. Am I not an apostle? The answer is yes. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? The answer is yes. He mentions seeing the risen Christ because, again, Paul wants to remind them that this is not something that he has taken upon himself, being an apostle. He has seen the resurrected Christ who directly, personally appointed Paul to be an apostle on his behalf. Remember that Paul opens the book this way in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Called by the will of God. So he reminds them, I am in this position because God put me here. Because God called me to this 
office. He then adds, are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, did I not plant the church in Corinth is what he's telling them. I planted the church in Corinth. You are the seal of my apostleship. You are the evidence of my workmanship. The answer is yes. Obviously, Paul planted the church there. He reminds them of what he's already said back in chapter 3, verse 6. In all of this, Paul's point is simply this. If there is anyone who has the right to eat and drink whatever he wants, if there is anyone who has the right to do whatever he wants within biblical parameters, it's Paul. Thus, his first point is that his apostolic office gives him the right to do virtually anything, obviously within the parameters of God's word. His second point is that because of his ministry, he has the right to be fully funded and supported by the church. He has that right. Whether he is single or married, he has that right. He makes his point again by asking a series of rhetorical questions, all demanding a yes answer. Right? This is a common ancient way of making arguments, asking rhetorical questions that the listener or the reader is forced to say yes to, yes, 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 thereby convincing themselves, okay, I get your point. And so he asks a series of rhetorical questions again. Notice verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Paul defends his right. He makes his defense by asking these rhetorical questions. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Yes, of course. Of course you have the right to eat and drink. If the church in Corinth has the right to eat and drink, which he's already said that, then of course so do the apostles. Do we not, verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So apparently don't miss the fact that there were other apostles who were married, not just Peter, right? That's what he is saying there. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? So apparently there were other apostles who were married. We're just not sure of who they are. We know Peter for certain because Peter is identified in the Gospels as uh, having a mother-in-law. The implication, obviously, is that he has a wife. Recall that in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. We also know from Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, that Jesus had brothers, which means that Mary had other children, regardless of what the Roman Catholic Church says. Jesus had brothers. We know that from Matthew 13. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were Jesus' brothers. Or Jude. Jude is an abbreviated form of Judas in New Testament times. We know from Scripture that James, of course, just a little bit of background, James goes on to become a leader among the apostles. So among these four brothers, James goes on to become a leader because we know that the original disciple by the name of James is martyred in 
Acts chapter 12, and so James takes his place and is the author of the book of James. We know that Judas, or Jude, most theologians believe is the author of the book of Jude, so he goes on to become a leader among the apostles themselves in the early church. The New Testament tells us nothing about Simon or Joseph or what happened to them. The point, however, that Paul is making is that he has the right to bring along a wife just like anyone else if he were married. His next rhetorical question is a bit of a convoluted question when you think about it. Verse 6, he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Like, what is he saying there exactly? I think what Paul is saying, in fact, I know what Paul is saying, is are Barnabas and Paul the only ones of the apostles who are expected to support themselves and refrain from working and not derive their living from the churches? That's what he's asking them. Are we the only ones, Barnabas and Paul, that are expected to support ourselves? when the other apostles in Jerusalem are all being supported by the churches. Paul then continues with additional rhetorical questions, laying it on thick in order to forcefully make his point. That's what all this is about. Paul is essentially going to make two points. One is a main point. The other is a secondary point to support that main point. And right now, what he's driving at is the secondary point. So he says in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. It's a rhetorical question. Everybody knows the answer to that. No soldier is expected to purchase his own weapon and his own ammunition and his own gear. Soldiers who serve in an army are provided for. Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? No one. We all know that. Anyone who has a garden, anyone who has a farm, anyone who harvests some sort of a crop always keeps for themselves as much as they want. It's theirs. They work to produce it, and then they sell or give away the rest or do whatever they want with it. Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? No one. People who tend sheep get as much milk as they want from the sheep where they shear their wool and use it for what they want. Or if they have goats, they will get the milk and use the milk for cheese or whatever else that they desire to do. All of these are rhetorical questions, and the, obvious, the answer is obvious to the reader. Thus, Paul demonstrates to them that all these things are simply common sense, just common sense. But then he quickly points out that this is not just his opinion. This may be common sense, but he wants them to understand this isn't just his opinion. He's not deriving his argument simply from logic or rationale or experience. Notice what he says in verses 8 to 10. Do I say these things on human authority? In other words, is this just my opinion? Does not the law say the same, referring to the Old Testament? For it is written in the law of Moses, now citing Deuteronomy 25.4. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Is that why God wrote this? 
Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, admittedly, there are some who are a bit puzzled by Paul's use of Deuteronomy 25.4. It's as if Paul is saying that when Moses wrote Deuteronomy 25.4 that he didn't really have oxen in mind, but he was actually thinking about people. But is that a proper understanding of the text? There are some who, in writing, actually accuse Paul of exercising eisegesis as opposed to exegesis. So there's your theological terms for the week. Eisegesis is the practice of reading into the text something that is not there or something that you want to be there. Exegesis is the practice of drawing out of the biblical text the original authorial intent, which is what we want to do. We want to practice exegesis, exegetical preaching, exegetical teaching, and avoid eisegesis. And there are some who accuse Paul of eisegesis. He's reading something into the text that was not there originally. It was not the original intent by the original author to the original audience. But I tend to think better of Paul. And I think that what Paul is doing is Paul is making a practical application of the law. He's making a practical application of the law. Because within the context of Deuteronomy chapter 23, 24, and 25, go back and read them, they're actually subtitled in your Bibles, miscellaneous laws. Because they're sort of a potpourri of laws, but they all have to do with caring for people, caring for animals, caring for slaves, caring for your neighbors, caring for women, caring for wives. They all have to do with caring for those around you, including animals. Thus, what Paul sees is that if God cares enough about oxen to the extent that he was willing to command that they be allowed to physically and materially benefit from their labor, then surely this would apply to people as well. So do you see what Paul is doing? It's the practical application of proper exegesis. Paul understands what that text is about. He's simply giving us the practical outworking of the law. Hence, Paul goes on to say, the plowman plows in hope and the thresher threshes in hope of sharing in the crop, and that just makes sense. The plowman who plows and the thresher who threshes at the end of the day, whether it's their own field or they work for someone, hope that they are going to benefit from their labor in some way. They plow in hope and they thresh in hope. Okay, so now Paul gets to the first of his two main points that he's been driving at. Verse 11 and 12. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, i.e. the apostles in Jerusalem are being supported by the churches, do we not even more? Barnabas and Paul, who planted the church in Corinth? Paul is drawing his argument from four corners. 
One, from common sense, which he talks about in verse 7. Secondly, from Old Testament texts, which he cites in verse 13, citing Deuteronomy 25.4. Thirdly, from Old Testament examples, which he will cite, excuse me, I misspoke, which he will cite in verse 13. And then fourthly, from the command of Christ, which he will cite in verse 14. So notice verse 13, and I'm not skipping the second half of verse 12. We'll come back to that in a moment. But notice verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar shall share in the sacrificial offerings. Paul is referencing a plethora of Old Testament commands which direct the people of Israel to fully support and fully fund the priest and the Levites because it was their job to care for the temple 24-7 and to minister to the people of God. We see this in Leviticus chapters 6 and 7, Numbers chapters 5 and 18, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, lengthy passages commanding Israel to fully support the priests and the Levites. This is because the tribe of Levi was not given a portion of land within the nation of Israel because they were given the task of caring for and ministering to the people of God. They were not to spend their time farming and ranching. They were to spend their time studying the word of God, plowing through Old Testament scripture, plowing through the law, making sure they know it, and ministering the word of God to the people of God. Thus, the people of Israel's support for the Levites and the priest was not a privilege for the priest and Levites, but rather it was a right. Because that which God commands be done to someone else is a right to that person. An example that sometimes causes people to cringe is when I talk or pray about respecting our government. Why do they deserve our respect? Not because of anything that they have done or because of who they are, but simply this, because in Romans 13, God commands that we respect them. Therefore, they have the right, they have the divine right to be respected because of what God has commanded. So also in verse 14, Paul then reminds them that this is also, this was also commanded by Christ himself. He says in verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, he does not cite the words of Christ or the reference, but very likely Paul has in mind Matthew chapter 10, where you remember Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he says, go and preach the kingdom of God to all of the cities of Israel. But he tells them to avoid uh, the cities of Samaria, preach the the gospel to all the, the, the cities of Israel. And then he gives them these instructions. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Why? For the laborer deserves his food. 
Or he has in mind Luke chapter 10. Remember, Luke was a companion of Paul. Thus, he may have been, Luke's doing research. Paul is there with him. What are, you, what are you learning? What are you writing? Let me read that manuscript. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 on a similar mission and again gives them similar instructions saying, and remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide. Why? For the laborer deserves his wages. Thus, Paul is making the strong argument that those who spend their lives ministering to God's people, ministering the gospel, have the right to be fully funded and supported by those whom they minister to. Though admittedly, this is not Paul's main point. This is his secondary point. That's why we took such a large chunk. This is Paul's secondary point. He is strongly making this secondary point in order to drive home his main point. Nevertheless, Paul's point is very strong and clear. Verse 14, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Thus, a church fully supporting her minister is not a matter of generosity or kindness, but rather is a matter of obedience. Yet sadly, throughout church history, Church history is replete with the stories of pastors who had to fight their church to adequately provide for their families. One of the most well-known examples is that of Jonathan Edwards. One of the several reasons Jonathan Edwards ended up leaving his church is because he had to fight. In his own journal, he records having to fight constantly with his church to provide for his family. They simply would not pay him adequately. It's amazing that no one would want to pay Jonathan Edwards. This is one of the reasons he jumped at the chance to become the president of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University. But as I said, this really is not Paul's main point. This is a secondary point that he is strongly making in order to drive home his main point. So let me, let me argue this in order to drive home this is what Paul is doing. And this secondary point that he is making is found in the second half of verse 12. So now we're going back to verse 12. Nevertheless, he has not made, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul drives home the point that as a minister of the gospel, he has the absolute right to demand that the church in Corinth support him. That wouldn't be a request. He has the right to be supported by them. Yet, he has not made use of this right. He is offering himself as an example of what he was just teaching them in chapter 8. In fact, he uses similar language in 8-9. There he says, but take care that this right, same word found in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 12, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, Paul made the argument in chapter 8 that Christians should be willing, Christians should be willing to forego their rights for the sake of unity. And now he is offering himself as an example of that very point.
point. Paul will endure, verse 12, Paul will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And Paul really did live this out. Paul was always careful not to demand this right from any of his churches because he did not want to convey the wrong message to the churches that he had planted or had ministered to. For example, in his farewell speech to the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, verses 33 to 34, Paul says this to them, quote, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul saw that demanding support from the churches could prove to be a stumbling block to those churches in two ways, in two ways, which he mentions in 2 Corinthians. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says this, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We are not peddlers of God's word. Paul did not want people to get the impression that what he did, he did for money. That what he did, he did to line his pockets. He says, I don't peddle the gospel. I proclaim the gospel because that is what God has commanded me to do. Yes, Paul was supported by churches. He admits that, but he never asked, and he doesn't demand. Paul has the highest standard of integrity when it came to money. Interestingly enough, that didn't prevent the church in Corinth from questioning his motives anyway. For example, in 2 Corinthians, again, at the end of the book, he addresses that very point in chapter 11, verses 7 to 9 of 2 Corinthians. He says this to them, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Did I do something wrong by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul's point is quite clear. Paul is not beholden to the church in Corinth. That's the point that he's making to them. He ministered them free of charge, and thus he goes on to say in verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do. In other words, Paul says, I am going to minister, I am going to preach, I am going to teach in the way that I know God has called me to do because I am not beholden to you, the church in Corinth. The second reason Paul did not demand support from his church plants is that he wanted to avoid the trap that many churches and ministers fall into. 
That is believing that the relationship between the church and her pastor is that of patron-client. That the church pays the pastor's salary, thus the pastor must do or behave or teach what the church wants him to do or teach or preach. And sadly, many pastors become beholden to the church for that reason. They end up preaching and leading with less conviction because little Susie needs her piano lessons and little Tommy likes playing baseball and I need to be able to pay for those things and I don't want to upset the people who pay my salary so I'm going to behave in a way or preach or teach the things that won't offend them. Paul was not going to fall into that trap of being beholden to the church because he knows the relationship between a pastor and the church is not that of patron and client, but rather is that of sheep and shepherd. But in the end, in the end, Paul's point that he is making is a point in which he uses himself as a living example to demonstrate that Christians should be willing. Christians should be willing to surrender their right for the sake of unity. Paul is a great example of leadership in that he truly practiced what he preached. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> Lord, we pray that you would enable all of us to do this. Because every adult in this room is in a leadership position, whether they see it or recognize it or not. Parents, fathers, and mothers are in positions of leadership over their children. Their children look to them for not only words of wisdom, but to set an example of Christian behavior. Husbands and fathers lead their families. Elders lead their churches. Single mothers and fathers are leaders to their grandchildren who look to them to model the Christian life. Single young adults are leaders to those around them who look to them to set an example. Father, we pray that this lesson from the Apostle Paul is a lesson that we would all learn, that we would lead by example, that we would be willing to forsake our right for the sake of unity. We pray this in Christ's name.